This is the Forbes Interview, Season 2. I'm your host, Stephen Bertoni. This show is for anyone with an entrepreneurial passion, looking for inspiration from established and -and up-and-coming business pioneers. You're about to hear the crazy story of the accidental venture capitalist, Bradley Tusk. But first, MailChimp's all-in-one marketing platform allows you to manage more of your marketing activities from one place, so you can market smarter and grow faster. Bradley Tusk, thank you for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. So this is great because, you know, I, I love your whole story, your trajectory. Um, but also, I think for our listeners, this is fascinating because you run, um, you know, Tusk Holdings. One of the many things you do is you have a venture capital arm. And everyone always talks about how the venture capitalists add value. And you add a type of value that no one else can, which is dealing with regulation, politics, things that people don't even think about when they're going to start a startup. I'm dying to hear how this works. So I started doing it almost by accident with mm-hmm. Uber in 2011. Uh, I'd run my Bloomberg's campaign in 2009. We won. I started a consulting firm. I was sitting in a Walmart meeting, and a buddy of mine called and said, hey, there's this guy with a small transportation startup. He's having some regulatory problems. Would you mind talking to him? Mm-hmm. Later that day, I became Uber's first political advisor. And then I get another call, which is really lucky. So Travis Kellen calls me back and says, hey, listen, I can't afford your fee. Would you take equity? This is during the Series A. Yep. Thank God I said yes. Um, then spent the better part of the next five years just beating the shit out of the taxi industry <laughs> all over the U.S. to make ride-sharing legal. Um, and really, you know, was enjoying it. A, it's fun to work with startups. And yep. B, obviously, there's only one Uber. But, you know, it's easy to see sort of the, the rise in valuation of your equity. And I thought, okay, I should do this with other startups. This is really great. So I'd, I'd go out and talk to other founders. And at the time, you know, they still didn't really appreciate the need to take this stuff seriously. So yep. the typical response would be, no, 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 you don't get it. I went to Stanford. I was in Y Combinator. John Doerr's on my board. Yeah, I have equity. I'm all set. And when those stupid regulators see how smart I am, they'll do whatever I want. I'm like, yeah, I'm pretty sure politics doesn't work like that, dude. Um, (laughs) But then uh, in the summer of 2015, there was a particularly vicious fight here in New York City between Uber and Mayor de Blasio. There's that saying, you can't fight City Hall. We did. We won. It got a lot of attention. And I think the, the notion that you have to take this stuff seriously started to change in the Valley and change in tech. And so I use that as a launching point to create Touch Ventures. Mm-hmm. So we both uh, have raised the fund and we invest in startups in regulated industries. So we're invested in companies like Bird, Circle, Coinbase, FanDuel, Lemonade, so on. Wow. Um, and then we'll also work with startups, both the ones that we invest in and sometimes others as well, usually in return for equity, sometimes in return for cash. It's fascinating because so many startup founders are control freaks and they're used to kind of playing God in a way that they create this company. Oftentimes, if it's a tech company, they're creating this code, they have full control. And that goes on to their daily lives when they're trying to hack their bodies, whether they're taking ice baths or taking all these you know, chemicals to be like super efficient. You don't think most of them are going to live to 160? Yeah. Oh yeah, of course. Stem cells, blood blood boys, whatever they call them. (laughs) But they have this kind of like, I am this, you know, like creator, I can do whatever I want. Then they, boom, they meet the taxi commission or like you said, the, uh, um, they meet uh, the New York City Council where I think you said if it's what in the book, it's like if it's 58 to two, it's a close, it's a close vote. If it's 49 to it's a close vote. That's like a nail biter. Yeah. So what is, tell me what is, when, what's, when they kind of have the epiphany, like, oh, wait a minute, I'm not such a hot shot that they don't, these people don't care what I do. Politics is its own world. And I think what's especially challenging for a lot of people in the Valley is the incentives and metrics that matter in politics aren't Mm -hmm. the same ones that matter in tech, right? A politician cares about votes, raising money for his campaign, poll numbers, media attention. Mm -hmm. You know, it's much more emotional, psychological, and much less dollars Mm -hmm. and cents. Um, So it's really hard often for founders to understand. They say, well, I'm right. It doesn't matter that you're right. That's not how this stuff works. So um, 
I think what happened over time was as they started watching the Ubers, the Airbnbs of the world, the Fandles of the world started to have these fights, it started to occur to them, okay, I've got to take this stuff seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, we tend to get calls in one of two situations, one that I like and one that I usually say no to. So the one that I say no to is the shit has hit the fan. You know, they got a cease and desist letter from 43 different states. Nine AGs are investigating them. At that point, like, well, why would I want their equity? Right? Yeah, yeah <laughs> you know? exactly. So uh, the ones that I like are the earlier stage Series A or even seed stage companies that say, we understand we're entering this industry. Mm-hmm. We know that if we are successful, we're going to disrupt these entrenched interests. We get that they're powerful. We don't get how to fight back. So can you come in and help us do that? And when I hear that, it at least says to me, okay, this founder is thoughtful, yeah. is reasonable. And in some ways, it makes me more inclined to deploy capital because, like, okay, if this is how they think and see the world, this is a sign they're probably going to be a pretty rational mm-hmm. leader. And so then of, of those, we decide which ones to invest in, which ones to work in. Um, you know, only do one in any given space. We don't have conflicts. Mm-hmm. And it typically are running campaigns in almost every city and every state simultaneously on, on one issue or another. The Uber thing's fascinating because, um, like you said, like you met this this guy named random guy named Travis, who while you're working with him, went from a small startup to a, you know, a life changing for many people. Like Uber's changed many people's lives. Yep. He became a, uh, you know, the cover, the the poster child for tech and disruption. Yep. Maybe the enemy, and obviously there's been ups and downs. And in the meantime, it also I'm sure it changed your lifestyle from being a consultant to like, you know, you got equity, you had a big windfall, life-changing windfall as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what, what it did was it gave me freedom, right? So I didn't grow yeah. up with a lot of money and I worked in government, right? My first job out of college, I was the spokesman for the New York City Parks Department and made $22,000 a year. And by the way, I, that was okay. Yeah. I was fine with it. Um, it was, I, it's funny, my wife and I joke now that now that you, whenever you have money, it turns out you spend it. Yeah. Um, but when we had much less money, we didn't feel like we didn't have money. We just lived much more modestly, yeah. and it was fine. Um, what I found now that by having all of this money, and, and, it, and the, luckily I made a good bet on Uber, yeah. is it just gives me the freedom and flexibility to try different things. So mm-hmm. now uh, we have Tuss Montgomery Philanthropies. That's our family foundation. I'm able to fund and run campaigns on issues I care about. So school breakfast, we've passed bills now in eight different states mm-hmm. to offer universal school breakfast to every kid. And then the big thing is blockchain-based voting. Yeah. What I learned in politics, if I learned one thing, it's that 99.9% of politicians are desperately insecure, self-loathing people who can't live without the validation of holding office. It's their oxygen. So just like you or I need oxygen to, to literally breathe, if they don't get that kind of validation and affirmation, there's a deep hole in their psyche and they just can't, can't exist. Wait, you mean your, your friend Anthony Weiner didn't need, doesn't need attention? He <laughs> doesn't care about that? Yeah, I, you know, that's exactly. The only one I worked for who was a little different was my blueprint. Yeah. But based on that... Every politician is going to make a decision solely based on how do I keep getting oxygen? Because politicians are so malleable and adaptable because all they care about is staying in office, they'll reflect the view of the people who vote, but more people have to vote. Um, And what we found through all the rock the vote and Beyonce and Jay-Z is like, we can't stick with the current system we have, right? It's an agrarian. It was a system built 250 years ago from an agrarian society. We vote on Tuesdays because that was what was convenient for farmers. Yep. And it just never, you never really see materially an increase in turnout other than maybe a presidential election. Um, but what I found in the campaigns that we ran for startups like Uber or FanDuel or Bird mm-hmm. is that the same people who would never vote in a primary probably don't even know the name of their city council member or their state rep. If they like your product and you can make a compelling argument to them and they can advocate for you from within the app, 
they'll do it, yeah. right? We made Uber legal everywhere in the U.S. by having millions and millions of customers all over the country speak out on our behalf and say, we want the ability to use this service. So um, I know those people will, will engage if you make it easy for them. And then the last piece of the puzzle is blockchain. So blockchain, because it's verified, because it's permanent, because it's done over so many different machines at the same time, yeah. so far no one knows how to hack it. I'm sure some, one day someone will figure that out. But right now it's a really secure way to vote, but probably much more secure than the current system. Yeah. Um, we funded, so long answer your question, yes. <laughs> uh, the state of West Virginia to run a, a pilot program okay. to do blockchain voting in their May primary and then again in their November general for deployed military. So mobile voting idea is to get the friction out of the way so you can vote from the toilet instead of voting. Yeah, sure, toilet's fine. But what about, um, you say in your book too, that it's all about controlling, control, politics is about controlling the narrative. Mm -hmm. And all we're talking about now is Facebook, Twitter, Russian trolls, Russian hacking. I'm sure the argument can come up like, oh, like Russian can't hack their paper ballot in, in the public school in New York, but oh, maybe they'll hack into accounts and they'll be voting for, um, that's gonna, that's, sure. that's a narrative oh, that's gonna I'm, come up. I'm, yeah. I'm already faced, just, just in West Virginia alone, I, I've had to deal with that argument. And look, if the system right now worked and I was just making some minor tweak, I think that would be a valid response. Yeah. But we have a completely dysfunctional, broken, polarized democracy and government that doesn't work on almost any level. Yeah. So, I, you know, yeah, there might be a 1% or 2% higher risk than if you only had paper ballots, which is not what we have right now anyway, no. by the way. Um, but the problem is so severe, that's like kind of saying, let's prevent drownings by filling in every swimming pool with concrete. Yeah. Right? That's not a solution. Do you like fights in terms of are you do you like the do you like the battle do you like I, you, you I, thrive I, I, in conflict? I feel like I'm supposed to say no to that, but you can tell um, you like fights. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. I, in my mind, it's it's not personal, um, but uh, yeah, I mean, politics by definition is kind of a binary sport, right? There's an election at the end of the day. There's a winner and yep. there's a loser, um, and you lose sometimes, and that's hard. But it's also really, even the fight itself is fun beyond just whether the the outcome itself. And so what's cool about these tech fights is you can take on often these entrenched interests that are pretty sleazy, like, you know, the taxi cartel, yeah. right? And fight them all over the U.S., beat the crap out of them, feel good about yourself in doing so, and usually win. Um, and what the book tries to do is explain, here's how you take on the fights and how you think about them in different situations based on the jurisdiction you're in, the laws on the books, the person you're disrupting, the politician you have to convince, and all of that, mm -hmm. and then that's how the strategy comes about. Yeah, how was like, what are your best stories out of fighting the tax union, because are the taxi cartels? You're not fighting the chess club, you're not fighting the uh, the quilting society of America. Like, yeah. These are some uh, rough folk. Take New York City, when de Blasio introduced the bill to cap Uber's growth, the bill was literally written by Gene Freeman and the taxi medallion owners. Mm -hmm. They are his biggest campaign con contributor. It is pay to play in the most perfect, pure form there is. Here's your money. This is what I need. Mm -hmm. Here's the bill that you're going to introduce. I'm going to write it for you, and you're going to hand it to the city council, and they're going to pass it. Now, mm -hmm. we were able to stop that in this case, but think about all the times where you don't have the, the customer base of an Uber or, or someone like me involved who yeah. understands politics. Um, what happens is just startups get rolled completely and competition and innovation is stifled. And that's a real problem. And that's what I want to try to prevent. And that's part of why I wrote this book. I want to talk a little more of this kind of your your path to this. But, you know, you, 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 know, you can't beat city hall, as you say. De Blasio has had the, you know, the kind of every, the city council in his pocket as, as any mayor does yep. what'd you do how did like so what's the playbook i mean people should read the book but what was the overall how did you get this passed yeah so i mean we, we just tried a totally different strategy that probably shouldn't have worked but but did which is de blasio fashions himself as this very progressive mayor hero mm -hmm. of the left but when you think about it taxi is an industry with a 
historical uh, record of, of racism. Yes. And so we ran the whole campaign from de Blasio's left and basically have ads of uh, my customers who are minorities or drivers who are immigrants saying, you know, I finally have a way to make a living. I finally have a way to get home to the Bronx or whatever yeah. it is. And you're taking it away from me purely because your campaigners don't don't want it. That's corrupt and that's racist. And I think, it's, you know, they say the, the thing that scares a, a white liberal the most is being called a racist. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I think that for de Blasio, just totally threw him through the city council. We spent about $5 million in TV ads wow. in one month. And at the same time, really mobilize our customers. So we created something called, you know, when, when you go into the Uber app, there's Uber X, Uber Black, whatever it is. Yeah. We created de Blasio as one of the options. And if you clicked on it, it said 25 minute wait time. Here's how to reach your city council member. And then through that, you could tweet, you could email, you could call. Um, and we were able to get hundreds and hundreds of thousands of New Yorkers to weigh in on this. Mm-hmm. And we're just beating the crap out of de Blasio and out of Viverito as a speaker. And we're picking off council members one by one. And uh, all of a sudden, one day, we get a call from city hall and said they want to meet. I said, okay, um, I assume this is a negotiation. Yeah. So we, we prepared a list of internally concessions we could make in the meeting. Uh, we decided I wouldn't go to the meeting. I'd kind of stay back and be the boogeyman so they could point to me and say, well, he's not going to be happy with yes. you. He's, yeah. he's the one you have to worry about because he's the bad guy. We're the nice guys. He's the one killing you. That's the old journalist trick. I want to do it, but my editor says Correct. I can't. Right, yeah. I'm the editor. And so I'm, I'm waiting for the meeting to end. I'm just sitting there like I can't even focus on anything else, right? I'm so, so hyped up about this. And finally, Josh Moore, who was the general manager of Uber New York at the time, sends me a text and just says, all good. All good what? And yeah. then nothing for like another 20 minutes. I'm like losing my mind. And it turned out they just want to take down the TV ads. They're like, if you stop attacking us, we'll make the whole thing go away. And that's what happened. That's a perfect negotiation on your part. Yeah, I was pretty happy with the outcome. You know, as a journalist at Forbes who's covered tech for a long time and a couple years ago, the whole community was kind of rah, rah, rah. You know, we were celebrating the next unicorn fundraising billionaire. These people are going to change the world. Yep. Jack Dorsey's going to be the mayor of New York and save everything. Like, remember that? Like yeah. 60 Minutes? That was oh, like, yeah, yeah, that was sure. peak tech, I think. Yeah. You know, in the, past, in the past couple of years with many things, I think we talked about this on your podcast, whether it's the scandals, Theranos, I think, you know, the whole, the, the new Trump administration is making everyone against authority or corporations and stuff. The things, everything's changed. You know, yep. the 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 heroes are now not villains, but you know, between Google and Facebook and all these comp- Uber, right? Yep. right? It's it's changed. What do you think? Like, are we fa- are these startups going to face even more public outrage, more regulation? Is it harder to be a startup person today, starting than it was five years ago, you in know, terms of I environment? Think, no. So I think that you have to separate it out between mega tech companies that are now just the biggest, most powerful companies in the world. Yes. And startups. And what's interesting about especially Google and Facebook and Twitter is because they created something that was brand new, Mm -hmm. they didn't disrupt anybody, which meant they didn't have the regulatory frights on the front end that a Facebook, that a Google, I'm sorry, that an Uber, an Airbnb, Mm -hmm. a Bird, a Handy would have. Yeah, there was no established opposition yet. Correct. So for a decade or more, they were able to just kind of coast by on their reputation, say things like don't be evil. And it's like, okay, that sounds great. Yeah. Um, but then eventually you become enough of a market power and A, you're going to screw some things up and, and those companies have all have, especially Facebook and Twitter. Um, and B, you're going to amass so much market share and so much power that antitrust regulators can start looking and saying yeah. there may be an issue here. Um, what's different about those companies from say most of the startups that we invest in and work it with is our guys are disrupting people on day one, which means we're having a fight on day one. Yes. We don't always win that fight, but if we win the fight, the only good news is we've kind of resolved it. Like ride sharing is legal in the U.S. Yeah. Um, Uber can still do other things and get themselves in trouble, but no one really debates the legality that, that this is a legal practice. Yeah, so they right? can ban ride sharing. Yeah, so I think when, when you look at this, at least the way I try to look at it is, is it 
friction or frictionless. If it's frictionless, the beginning is easier, but then you run into trouble later on if you're not prepared for it. And clearly, mm-hmm. a lot of these companies were not prepared for it. Um, if it's full, filled with friction, it's a lot harder earlier on. And sometimes you never you don't survive at all. The book has a story about a company called My Table, which did kitchen sharing. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I kind of very arrogantly thought I could sort of restructure the entire regulatory framework for, for kitchen inspection and commercial kitchens. Yeah. And it was a really small company, and they just ran out of money before I could achieve anything, right? And they went broke, and that was it. Yeah, you can fight uh, City Hall, but you can't fight the health commissioner, apparently. Especially not like with you know like a $200,000 seed round. Yeah, exactly. Um, so um, it is harder for those companies to get over the hump at first, but if they do, they've kind of settled the problem to a certain extent. So in the way of looking at it, it's not so much tech, not tech, because every company is a tech company. I mean, you, whoever made the table that we're sitting uh, at right now, use technology, it's water or whatever it's made out of, but they use technology to make the table, right? Mm -hmm. There's no such thing as not a tech company. Is it a tech company that's dealing with the regulatory problems on the front end, or is it dealing with it later on? Mm -hmm. What advice would you give to startups right now, if you're forming a startup or raising money, and what should they think about, I mean, obviously it depends on what what the company does, but for any founder in terms of what you do, whether it's yeah. regulation, lobbying, government stuff, what are, what? give me some advice yeah, for so that. He, here's what I would do. The first thing is you need to understand whether the industry you're in is regulated or not. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember we once took a look at the Fortune 200 and like 92% of the companies were at least indirectly regulated by yeah. government. But there are some, if you're a total SaaS B2B enterprise company, you really may not be, right? In which mm-hmm. case, you don't need to talk to me and, yes. and you don't need me. But if you're the other 92%, then you have to say, okay, A, what are the laws on the books? And it's usually in a city by city or state by state case because most of these companies are regulated on a local level, not on a federal level. Mm-hmm. Is what I'm doing explicitly legal, illegal, or gray? It's almost always gray because you're the one that thought of this idea in the first place. So the law doesn't cover it because if the bureaucrats who wrote the mm-hmm. law could have thought of it, they'd be entrepreneurs and not bureaucrats, yes. right? <laughs> so then the question is, how gray is it? Who am I disrupting? How politically powerful are they? How much control do they have? Who's the politician in charge in each jurisdiction? There are politicians that like innovation and are easier to work with, and there are politicians like Bill de Blasio that hate innovation and are harder to work with. Uh, And what are the penalties if I choose to beg for forgiveness instead of asking for permission? What am I looking at, right? If it's confiscating the scooter, no big deal. Mm -hmm. If it's five to seven years in jail, that's a problem. Yes. Um, So it's really being able to sort of ask and answer all these questions intelligently, understand that their answers vary from market to market, and your strategy tends to vary from market to market. And then incorporating that into what you're doing overall, just like your fundraising strategy, your coding strategy, your marketing strategy, and everything else. You mentioned before how you know you you look at companies whether you know, on many levels and to take them on or not take them on. Have you ever taken said no to a company because not, what they're doing is you don't believe in it or yeah. it's absolutely like it's illegal and you know it's just yeah. Bad. So there's a few cases, right? There are yeah. times where things like Jewel, right? Yeah. Where I mean it's an incredibly successful company, but we don't want to work on that, mm-hmm. right? So there there are times where just morally we don't want to be involved, and that's even on the on our consulting business, like we turn down Chick Fil A because of their policy, you know, mm-hmm. gays and lesbians. Um, so there's that. There are times we turn things down because we're already in the space and we think it's a conflict. Yes. Um, and there are times where we just think, you know what, this isn't a winnable fight, right? What you want to do here either can't be overcome or you're not going to have the resources to get there. So, for example, ed tech is a sector that tends to scare me off. Mm-hmm. And the reason why is there are 15,000 school districts in the U.S., 15,000 K-12 through school districts. The smallest one, getting a contract done with them, is just as political, just as bureaucratic, yep. and just as cumbersome as the biggest one. 
And it's really hard for an early stage startup to have the bandwidth to deal with all these different jurisdictions. So and the teachers union are some of the biggest donors. In correct. The, they're like right, well, right. always the Democratic, like number two or three, or both sides. Yeah. Teachers yeah. union is massive, especially right? Democrats, right. Especially because most of this regulation happens on a local level. They're really heavy donors to, you know, city council members, mayoral candidates, state legislative candidates, gubernatorial candidates. So they're really hard to beat. They're beatable. Like I've run campaigns for the charter schools, but yes. those campaigns are funded by the hedge fund guys. So we had the resources right. to win. Mm-hmm. The, the book's got a chapter about that. Um, so, the combination of, of the entrenched interest there and the, the challenge of disrupting them, um, plus the bureaucracy involved, means that you're probably not going to have the bandwidth to succeed, mm-hmm. right? Or recreational drones, right? So I think commercial drones have insane potential yes. and will do a lot of things. But we're just talking about like kind of the flying equivalent of a ham radio. The challenge here is it can be, it annoys everybody and can be regulated by so many different people, right? Uh, a local park district, the county, the city the state, the, the, the FAA, the airports, the, DOT, yeah, yeah. the airport, that like you're just never going to fight through all of those layers of regulation. No. And so there's just not, there's no point. And the community, everyone's like, yes, we need, like, I want Uber, but no one's like, I wish there were more drones flying over my head. Right, yeah. That's I like, mean, yeah. And, and, and even the drone, the, the drone enthusiasts are not really large or vocal enough. So like if you take fantasy sports, Obviously, the number of people who play FanDuel or DraftKings is smaller than the people who ride Uber or Lyft. Yes. But they're very passionate. Yes. Right? So, you know, we would contact them and say, hey, we're trying to pass this law in Louisiana, wherever it is, to legalize fantasy sports. Most of the time, like, they don't know who their state rep is. No. But they know that they'd really like playing FanDuel. Yep. And they know that if they press this button and send this tweet, they're more likely to play than not. And so they do. But you don't have that with recreational drugs. No, and also, yeah, and no one's calling their their uh, congressperson being like, "Oh, my neighbor's playing FanDuel." It's like it's not. It doesn't right. hurt. What is the biggest fight? Like the toughest fight you were ever in in politics? Well, so probably more on the actual governmental side for yeah. me than on the on the tech side. In part on the tech side, they're really tough. But you asked before about the advantages of of, of life changing money. My life is not going to change materially if I lose any one campaign. Yes. Right. Uh, although we do work really hard every time. Um, look, I mean, I think the scared, scariest I've ever been is in Illinois. Uh, I worked for Rod Blagojevich. He was arrested uh, on charge of 24 different counts of corruption. Mm-hmm. And I had to testify in both trials against him. Um, I got really lucky in that the one time that he asked me to do something illegal, uh, it was so Stupid, quite frankly. I mean, it was illegal, but even more, like, the stupidity offended me. So <laughs> Rahm Emanuel, who's now the mayor of Chicago yes. at the time, was a congressman uh, from Chicago. Rod had promised Rahm— Obama's former chief of staff. Correct. Yeah. Um, Rahm, Rod had promised Rahm $2 million bucks for an athletic facility in Rahm's district. Kind of typical state gives a grant, that type of thing, yeah. right? Um, Rahm's brother, Ari Emanuel, who's like a Hollywood mogul, yeah. probably listeners of this podcast know who he is. Um, Rod hadn't kind of— authorized the grant to go through. And I didn't actually deal with grants. I wasn't really aware of it. And then one day, Rom calls me in this typical Rom Emanuel way. And if anyone's ever watched Entourage, just imagine Ari, you know, Ari from Entourage. Yeah, he's based partly on, on Ari Emanuel, on, on, right? Yeah. And they're, I guess the, the brothers are similar. Yes. So it's, you know, fuck you this, fuck you that. Yeah. Where's my money? Um, so Rom's screaming at me, fine. So let me look into it because I haven't heard of this thing before. Yes. Uh, that night, I'm on the phone with, with Rod. And I say, hey, you know, by the way, I talked to Rom. He's really upset. And Rod just goes crazy. And he's like, I want my fundraiser. It's, I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. Said, Ari Emanuel is supposed to have a fundraiser for me. He's not getting that grant until I get my fundraiser. And I'm like, 
man, you can't link these two things, right? No. A, a government grant <laughs> for a school and a political fundraiser are two separate things, and it's really A, illegal, and B, dumb, because that was the year that Rom was running the effort for the Democrats to retake the House of Representatives. He succeeded, by the way. Like, mm-hmm. This is one of the most powerful guys in the country. Why would you screw with him over something this, this small yeah. and trivial? Um, and so luckily, I said, we can't do that, and I reported it, and it didn't happen. But even with that, I still ended up having to spend lots of time with FBI agents, U.S. attorneys, you know, getting cross-examined by his lawyers in the courtroom, getting surrounded by the media. And even when you're the good guy, it's a really stressful process. In fact, the day um, my son was born, uh, the FBI had called me. This was maybe maybe a couple of weeks after the was arrested in 2008 and said, we want to interview you. And I kind of knew that was going to happen, right? Um, So I'd already gotten a lawyer. And my wife was, I don't know, 37 weeks pregnant at the time or something like that. And so we said, look, I just can't can't go to Chicago right now. I'm running the Bloomberg campaign, and my wife's really pregnant, so I can come in a few months, or you can come to see me. They said, okay, we'll come to you. So and they come on a Saturday because I'm busy running the campaign during yep. the week, and they bring like hey, 20 people, like all came from Chicago. It must cost a lot of money. Yep, it's a lot of effort. And as I'm getting dressed to go to the meeting, my wife's water breaks. <laughs> That's a good excuse to get yeah. out of it. So I, I go. So we call the doctor. She said, yeah, it's probably been a while. Yeah. And we didn't say I have to go meet with the FBI. <laughs> but she said, I, I got to do something. She, okay. Um, but about two hours in, my wife called me and said, we got to go to the hospital. And I just stood up and said, I got to go. Yeah. What do you mean? We just did all this stuff. And I'm like, you know, unless you want to arrest me, like, I, I have That's to go. Good, yeah. um, we texted them photos of the baby that night. And I think they were okay with it. But um, Good sympathy. Yeah. Move, yes. But man, it was a, a memorable day the day that your son's born and you're interviewed by the FBI. <laughs> Yeah, then a week into it, you're not sleeping. You're like, arrest me for a night. I just need a night of sleep. I'll be all, I'll be all set. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, you were, I mean, you would have been, you were 29 and an out-of-towner and lieutenant governor of Illinois. Yeah, deputy governor. You would have been on the uh, on the under-30 list for Forbes for sure. What was that? I mean, just, I mean, we're going over, I mean, this should be a two-part because um, I can talk about this forever. What was that like being like, first of all, like a kid from like Long Island yep. and you're in the middle of Illinois and you're dealing with all this, you know, and sh- you know, Illinois is not, it's notorious for certain uh political things what was i mean was that just the fastest learning curve ever i mean it was insane right so i got the job in part because i was so young and naive so blagojevich putting aside all the illegal stuff was crazy in fact had he pled insanity i think they would have to have given it to him yeah but the problem is crazy people don't think they're crazy right so um he didn't plead insanity but working for him on a day-to-day basis was brutal simply because he just wasn't rational right so you would just have insane stuff going on all day. So they understood on some level, they needed someone young enough, that was such a career-making job, they'd put up with all the insanity mm-hmm. because the opportunity was so significant. Um, so, and also because I was so young and naive, they could rob the place blind, yeah. and I didn't, until Rod asked me to extort, you know, in Rahm Emanuel, I didn't notice, right? Um, so that's why I think I got the job, and then what was so remarkable once I was there is, Rod, in a both highly ideological and highly logical way, saw the job of running for office and the job of holding office as two totally yeah. separate jobs, which in a way isn't crazy, actually. It is. I mean, like, I mean, yeah. they're totally different. Different skill know. sets, yeah. for sure. He was the, one of the best I've ever seen at running for office and had, was totally abysmal at, at governing. I had no interest in it. He would literally say, I did my job. I'll see you guys again in four years. But Rye would literally like not come to the office for three months at a clip, right? Just not come. Not come, yeah. And people just picked up the slack and probably ran better without him, Well, right? so, you know, I was deputy governor and every state agency and everything had reported up to me. And I remember, you know, after the first, first legislative session, 
you know, they, they pass a couple hundred bills, and most of them are nonsense, like the official amphibian of Illinois is the frog. Or oh, whatever. nice. But like, go, for, go frogs. Yeah, but let's assume there's like 40, 50 bills yeah. that have real public policy significance, right? So you go, you do a serious budget review, legal review, policy review, and then we prepare these all in this very nice binder. Governor, let's go through these. Yes. I can't make it today. I got to go to the tailor. I got to get a haircut. <laughs> I got to go shopping. I have to go for a run. He did have incredible hair. He has great hair. He had really nice suits also. Yes. Um, and eventually when I, I finally got through my thick skull, the message was, I'm not going to deal with this stuff. And I was like, well, these bills have to be signed or vetoed. So I just started doing it um, and ended up for four years signing or vetoing every bill, granting or denying pardons, choosing what went on the budget, choosing what the legislative agenda was. When I testified in this corruption trial, they had to go back and see whether the four years of legislation passed were validly enacted because uh, he had no role in it. No role. Uh, because they used the auto pen they were. Um, but so it was an amazing experience in some ways because imagine, you know, you're 29 years old, it's the fifth biggest state in the country, and you wake up in the morning with an idea, you don't have the power to make that public policy by lunch, right? So you're basically running, in some ways, running that yeah, state. Yeah, not in some ways. I mean, that was, I should not have been, to be very yes. clear. I wasn't qualified to do so or elected to do so. But because he didn't do it and I was second in charge, someone had to do it. Wow. And, and so I did. And what was interesting was a lot of the people who ran the different state agencies, you would think kind of would bristle at that. In some ways, they were just happy to have someone who, A, was at least working and giving, answering their calls and their emails and giving them direction, and B, taking all the slings and arrows from Bogoyevich. I still had to deal with him all day. I just had to deal with like whatever paranoid conspiracy theory he was throwing <laughs> at me all day long while I was also trying to run the state. So it was a brutal experience, but it was also a pretty amazing experience. This has been some really honest look at how this country's run. This is amazing. Yeah. What, so, what, sorry if I depressed no, you. No, no. <laughs> Besides all these great stories, what is the one? Th what is like the one fallacy the average American thinks about politics and government that could like wake them up to? Like, what's the biggest fallacy? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest fallacy is they just don't. Even if they are cynical about their their politician, you know, everyone kind of hates Congress. Congress has like a six percent approval rating, but then the incumbents get reelected ninety percent of the time. Everyone loves their congressman, and the reality is, you have to understand your congressman is not your congressman. Your congressman is someone who literally can't survive without the attention that he or she gets from holding that office. And every decision they make is not going to be what's in your best interest or the community's best interest, but solely what will help them in the next election. Um, and that's all it is. It's totally transactional. And this is true for almost every politician. Bloomberg's the only one I worked with who wasn't like this. Mm -hmm. And actually, when, I, when Obama was state senator, he was a little different also. But, um, but that's really about it. It's a pretty short list. And you know, all of the decisions you make around voting, and usually the main thing is most of the people in this podcast don't vote. Yeah, you think you vote because you, you showed up and voted for mm -hmm. for against Trump or Hillary or whatever it is. You didn't vote in your city council primary. You didn't vote in your mayoral primary. You didn't vote in your gubernatorial election. You know, you voted once every four years. Maybe you show up at the midterms. Yeah. You're the problem. The reason why your views are not reflected is because you're not showing up. Now, I'm trying to solve that by making it possible yeah. for you to vote in your phone, but I'm like, that's going to take me a decade to get this done around the country. So between now and then, please show up for all these elections because that's how you stop these guys from doing stupid things. This is scary. So I guess HBO's Veep is much more accurate than like the West Wing. Oh, sa sadly, yes. I mean, the West <laughs> Wing's a lot of fun, but you know, the idealism of that is in no way reflective of reality. I mean, I, I love Veep because yeah, it, 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 it strikes close to the core. Wow. So we've gone way over, but quick lightning round predictions. Um, Travis, come back. Yes. Uh, he made something like five or six billion dollars at Uber. He is one of the most visionary, brilliant, relentless people I know. He's got his flaws like everyone else. Uh, I don't excuse him for them, mm -hmm. but you would be foolish to bet against him. And give me one tech prediction. Uh, crypto lives. Um, does, whether or not Bitcoin goes up or down, 
fundamentally, and it's probably consistent with the theme of this podcast, people have so little faith in government, in media, in Wall Street, in religion, there's a vacuum. And that vacuum's got to go somewhere. And that notion of a decentralized currency, and, and we're investors, to be clear, in things like Circle and Coinbase yes. and mm-hmm. exchanges, um, makes a lot of sense. I have no idea whether Ethereum's going to go up or down in a given moment, but the notion that people want an alternative, to me, feels very real. And so it's not going away. Well, this was fascinating. This might have to have to do a part two um, coming up soon. Cool. I want to thank Bradley Tusk, the founder and CEO of Tusk Ventures and the author of The Fixer. Yep. I'm going to read today. it again. Yep. Amazon Today and cool. the and the audiobook read by Bradley himself. Not as well, but yes. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Steve. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to the Forbes interview. I'm Stephen Bertoni. Please subscribe to the show anywhere you get your podcasts and leave a rating and review. I'll see you next week.